Luke 22, looking at verses 21 through 38 this evening. Okay, we are on. A different way. The message I'm preaching this evening is not necessarily on a topic we've not considered before. Um, in fact, it's one that's quite regularly found in scriptures so that uh, these topics are um, more going to confirm and renew and, and, and remind us rather than necessarily introduce something per se uh, new to the gospel or, or in Jesus' teachings. Recall Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. It is on Passover. They have just participated in the first observance of a memorial which yet holds deep meaning and importance to the church. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper. We walk in fellowship with our Lord uh, and in unity one with another, eagerly anticipating the day, indeed longing for the day, when we will fellowship face to face with our Savior. It was Fanny Crosby who once wrote, Oh, the soul-thrilling rapture when I view his blessed face and the luster of his kindly beaming eye. How my full heart will praise him for the mercy, love, and grace that prepare for me a mansion in the sky. Oh, the dear ones in glory, how they beckon me to come and our parting at the river, I recall. To the sweet vales of Eden, they will sing my welcome home, but I long to meet my Savior first of all. That's in many ways the spirit of our Union around the Lord's table, eagerly anticipating the day when we will meet our Savior. As we pick up this evening, we're yet in the upper room. Jesus is thinking deeply about the death that is to come. He knows what this is going to mean, not just for him. And what I particularly love about our study this evening is that his focus in this time is so deeply on his disciples. He is so concerned about them. In this time, he's the one that's going to die. He's the one that's going to suffer. He's the one that is going to drink that cup of God's wrath. He is the one that is going to bear that. And yet his thought, his mind, his focus is on his disciples. His concern is for them in this time. The events of the next 24 hours will be rapid, confusing, and very discouraging for them. It has already been an emotional night for them, and it's only going to become more so. There will be sorrow, there will be pain, but it is pain and sorrow unto an expected end. Jesus desires to prepare his followers for that which is to come, and so Jesus makes several prophetic statements combined with exhortations to these 12 men. So it is Jesus and his disciples are eating, and we pick up in verse 21. The Bible says in verses 21 and 22, but behold, this is Jesus speaking, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me at the table, and truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus remarks that the hand of the betrayer of him is with him at the table. Judas had at some point earlier in that week made a deal with the religious leaders to betray Jesus. At that point, it was more or less a verbal commitment. Then Ju Judas would do the work uh, knowing that they've committed to pay him and then they will pay him the money. So there's this verbal commitment, but Judas is committed to this idea. And as we spoke then, as we talked about Judas a couple of weeks ago in the message on him being a pretender, just briefly... The idea was not that these religious leaders 
did not know who Jesus was, right? Uh, it's not that he needed to be betrayed because they didn't know who he was and they wanted to get the right guy. The idea, rather, is that they're counting on Judas to tell them a time when Jesus would be away from the large group, the larger contingency of his followers, when Jesus would be, by and large, alone, where they could take him with minimal incident, where they could take him and they could form a crowd of people at his trial that would be hostile toward him so that they can get what they want. They're trying to rig, rig, rig the trial here. And that's why they needed Judas. They needed someone to ha- have the inside information necessary to get, the, to get Jesus when Jesus was most compromised. You'll notice as we walk through Jesus' lesson and prophetic warnings that there is a general sequential order to them, that they will transpire in the general order that Jesus delivers them. And the first statement Jesus makes is of his own betrayal. He says that his betrayer is there at the table with them. And this would be a a shock because eating was a form of intimate fellowship. It was, was, and and of course, after the the Lord's Supper is instituted where each one goes through this ceremony, this memorial of Christ's body, which will be broken in the New Testament in his blood. But what this does mean is that one of those 12 would betray him. Jesus says it must happen, for indeed he must die. It is as was determined. He acknowledges that it will happen in accordance with the Father's will, that there will be a betrayer so that the events of Jesus' atoning work can be initiated. But nonetheless, Jesus says, Woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. We've spoken over the past couple of weeks regarding various elements of the Christian life that seem to be in tension one with another. And there's perhaps no area of theology where, it's more, where there's more evident tension than the tension between the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. And that because we know that God is beyond time, which means God knows the end from the beginning. God is at the end just as he is at the beginning. Quite literally, God is already sitting at the end of all things with us in glory. As far as God's concerned, he's there as much as he's here. He knows who's there because he's already there with us. We're not there yet because we are in a linear timeline. God's not. God's already with us in glory. And God was with us in glory at the same moment Adam was partaking of the fruit in the garden. God is outside of time. He's not bound by time. And because God knows the end from the beginning, God knows who he can use to accomplish his purposes. He has no need to physically override the will of man because he knows what man he needs to put in a particular position and what that man's decision would be so that he can use man's decisions to accomplish his will by placing the right man in the right place. What does this mean? Well, this means that God was not forcing. The the will of the Father did not force Judas to betray Jesus. The will of the Father did not override Judas' will and compel Judas against his will to betray Jesus. Did Jesus have to be betrayed? Indeed, Jesus had to be betrayed. That was a part of God's plan. And to that end, God the Father compelled Jesus to choose Judas as one of the twelve, knowing Judas was a pretender. Judas was chosen as one of the twelve because God knew the choice he would make, 
but God did not force this choice. And this allows the woe which Jesus proclaimed here to be both valid and just. Why, Pastor? Why do you even have to specify that? Because if God overrode the will of Jesus uh, of Judas and forced Judas to betray Jesus, and then Jesus proclaims a great woe on Judas and, and punishes him for that which Judas had no choice in doing, that's not a just God. It is not a just God. It is not a just society that forces a man into a crime that he does not want to commit and then punishes the man for the crime he didn't want to commit. It is not a just judge. It is not a just society. And it is not a just God that forces a man to commit something and then punishes that man for the decision he forced him to make. And so this is an important thing for us to understand. It would not be just for God to force Judas to betray Jesus and then punish him for doing so, but it is absolutely just for God to use a man whom he knew would make a wrong choice and then punish that man for the evil choice that he made because he made the choice. And God does this in history all the time. We'll talk about it more in our application today. God uses evil men, men that hate him and oppose him to accomplish his divine purposes, doesn't he? It is amazing as we study history how often God, in the grand weaving of history, uses evil men, uses men even that intend to spurn God and intend to do the exact opposite of, of God's will, and, and God uses that unto his glory, unto his favor, while all the while allowing man free will weaving history together to accomplish these things that God wills. And by the way, it works both ways. Jesus died on the cross so God could both judge sin and justify the ungodly. How many times have you seen divine appointments? Times in life where it seems God brought the perfect person at the perfect time. Had you not been where you were when you were there, what might have been missed? Had I not been in that circumstance at that, that time and heard the gospel? Or had I not been at that circumstance at that time and given the gospel? We've seen those things happen. We've seen God weaving history together, not just using evil men to bring about his purposes, but using all things for his purposes. This is God. Not overriding your will, not overriding my will, but weaving events together, using our will, using our, our, our compulsions, and then, of course, guiding believers by his spirit to accomplish his purposes. This is a testament to the great power of God. So it is that Jesus proclaims a woe upon the one who would betray him, the man that we already know to be Judas Iscariot. In fact, Matthew 26, which is a parallel passage to our Luke 22 passage this evening, uh, in verse 24, Jesus says it would, be, it would have been better that that man not be born than that he fulfill the work of betraying Jesus. And what, what I marvel in at this statement, that Jesus is sitting there among the twelve saying, the, the hand of the man who betrays me is at this table. It would have been better that that man not be born than that he would betray me. And what I marvel at is that that does not stop Judas in his tracks. Isn't that incredible? That at that point, Judas does not change his mind and say, yeah, this is a really bad idea. It would be better that I'm not born than that I do this. It doesn't do that. This is the legacy of unbelief. 
However, the statement does not go unnoticed by the disciples. They evidently don't understand the tremendous implications of it. Verse 23, the Bible says, and they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. The disciples say, which one would it be? Which would do this thing? Now, they don't know what it means that Jesus would be betrayed. They really don't have in their minds yet the fullest idea that Jesus is going to be taken, that he's going to be arrested, that he's going to be beaten and bruised and hung on a cross. That's not on their mind. They don't know what it means that there is a betrayer among them. They certainly don't realize all that it would bring about. But we must put a few pieces together here uh, to draw some uh, from the various Gospels in order to get, again, a full picture. I mentioned just briefly Matthew 26, verse 24, a few moments ago, where Jesus said it would be better that Judas had not been born. Let's consider the whole context of that passage together in verses 21 through 25. The Bible says this, And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said... Several things we find here. First, the disciples did not just inquire among themselves. The Bible says that they also asked Jesus. So they were inquiring among themselves. And then at various points, it would seem, many of them said, Master, is it I? As we saw earlier in Matthew 26. And second, probably lest he be left out, Judas asks as well, is it I? probably just because the others are saying it and he'd feel pretty awkward if he wasn't wondering. <laughs> kind of give it away. <laughs> so he asks, and of course, Jesus simply says, thou hast said. To fill in the rest of the picture, we go to John. And in the John passage, we read this, John 13, verses 21 to 30. When Jesus had thus said, he was very troubled in spirit and testified and said, verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked on one another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's generally understood to be John. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him. Simon Peter says, hey, John, that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. John, ask Jesus who it is. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, said unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop. When I have dipped it, and when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Kind of an interesting one here, because we have John ask, Lord, who is it? Jesus says, the one who I give the sop to, and then the record says, he dipped it and gave it to Judas. It would seem pretty clear then who it was. Well, but then it says that none of them understood, none of them knew, right, um, to what intent he said to Judas, go and do what you're going to do quickly. So either what happened here is that Jesus did make John 
privy to the information, but the other disciples did not know, and John effectively kept it to himself, or there was still this cloud of lack of discernment surrounding the disciples to where they just really still weren't getting it. Could have been either one of those, uh, but we do see that this is in John's gospel that this is written, and John was the one that was lying on Jesus and the one that asked this question. And seeing as though this was only given in John's gospel, we might understand that John did understand what was going on, but the rest of the disciples did not, perhaps. Um, there's, there's some debate about that. It is a little bit confusing. One way or another, though, the Bible says that when he gave this sop to Judas, that this, it seemed, uh, brought about a circumstance where Satan's influence... On Judas, God released any protection over Judas at this moment. And Satan filled his heart. He was determined to do. Satan took full hold. And so Jesus looks at him and says, whatever you're going to do, what you're going to do, not whatever, he knows, what you are going to do, do it quickly. So Judas knows and Jesus knows. The other disciples think that he's going to buy something for the next day's feast because he held the money bag. And Judas leaves the group, and this would be the last time that they see Judas, for Judas will betray Christ and then eventually will uh, repent of his choice and hang himself. We continue now in verse 24 with a different conflict. There was also strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest? This is not the first time this topic's come up. We read a similar account in Matthew 18, parallel in Mark 9, and then, of course, we studied it in Luke 9. The disciples were yet in Capernaum at that time, and they asked Jesus who was greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They were disputing among themselves who the greatest should be. They were actually saying, no, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. No, he's going to be the greatest. We know that Jesus had an inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, and then he had his his larger group of 12, and then, of course, there was the 70 and, and such. So uh, they were maybe disputing over which of the three, Peter, James, or John, would be the greatest. We don't know all the details of that. Uh, but this had happened way back in Luke 9. And when we read this way back in Luke 9, uh, we, we had mentioned before Jesus' answer talking that the least would be the greatest, right? Uh, and here we are now in Luke 22, and they're still talking about this. They're still bickering over who's the greatest, and here they are at the Passover table, the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, and they're bickering over who's going to be the greatest among them. Let's, however, not necessarily use this insight to shake our heads at them, to judge their thoughts and intentions. Um, these passages of Scripture are not necessarily given to us so that we can smile, roll our eyes, and say, oh, those disciples. Because... There's some things in my life that I've known for years. And I still get hung up on them. It's a good reminder of our own propensity to struggle, even with the things that are made quite plain to us. These disciples are no worse than us. They're not doing something that is uncommon among Christians. They're They're human. And we need to remember that. So Jesus responds on this day the same way he did way back in Luke 9, verses 25 through 27. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. 
But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. This is an important chunk of this passage and really where the inspiration for the title came from, the idea of a different way. Jesus presents a different way here. Jesus tells them that the kings of the Gentiles exercise rule over them. Israel is not under the rule of of their own kings. They are not under the rule of some Davidic monarch. They are under the rule of the Gentile world. They are under the rule of the Roman Empire. They are under the rule of a Caesar that literally claimed to be God. And Jesus tells them that these delegated leaders, these leaders of men, these Gentile leaders call themselves benefactors. I love this because this is still the way, this is still the way leaders think of themselves today. So this, it's a self-given title that various rulers throughout the years would give to themselves. The word benefactor literally means one who confers a benefit upon someone else. So when we say, I have an anonymous benefactor, our church has a couple of anonymous benefactors that have been very good to our church. They have sent us chunks of money and they have done so anonymously without any expectation of return. They are our benefactors. They are benefiting us. They are conferring a benefit upon us. They are making a charitable contribution unto us. And all the way back into intertestamental periods, what's amazing is that we actually find some of these Greek kings that took on that name. In Egypt, which was the Ptolemaic Empire, the Ptolemies, the pharaohs, went by, many of the pharaohs went by the name Pharaoh Eugertes. Eugertes is the same Greek word that we have here, benefactor. Literally, he was saying, I am the Pharaoh who gives to my people, the Pharaoh that benefits my people in ruling. Turn on the television on any given day and listen to a few moments of a politician talking, and you will realize they actually think they're benefiting us in some way. That's confusing to those who are underneath their rule because they look and say, you're just getting in the way. But these people actually think they're being of of tremendous benefit to society. uh, And and our founders knew better, which is why they put all of these checks and balances in place. Uh, Government never lends itself to great benefit. It lends itself to uh, great problems. And yet, so they they had self-professed themselves as great benefactors, right? And that's what Jesus says. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over you. They take on this name as authorities the benefactors. We are your benefactors. We are the ones who gift you all of these things. We are the ones who bless you with our great leadership, right? And the idea behind this is that these men that are calling themselves benefactors are oftentimes evil men, tyrants, selfish men, calling themselves by the self-aggrandizing title of benefactor, implying that their leadership is actually a gift and a blessing to the people under them, which was not the case. And Jesus is going to paint a contrast here. What is a true benefactor leader? What kind of a leader is actually a benefactor? Is actually an asset to the people he leads? What kind of a leader is a benefactor? Jesus is seeking to paint a contrast here. 
as Jews, the kings of the Gentiles rule over them, and in lordship they call themselves benefactors. They believe, or at least want others to believe, that by ruling over the Jews, they're doing the Jews some sort of favor. We've put you under Roman protection. You have Roman laws. You have Roman roads. We are a benefactor to you, even though, by and large, they're a thorn in the Jews' side. Herod called himself a benefactor as he slaughtered the young people in Israel. Archelaus called himself a benefactor as he ruled with an iron fist. As they deprived men and women of their rights, they called themselves benefactors. And Jesus said, it will not be so among the great that are among you. The great that are among you will be benefactors only on one condition. There's only one condition that makes a leader a benefactor. And that is that he serve others. That is what makes a leader a benefactor. The greatest among you, Jesus says, will be as the younger. The chief among you will be as one that serves. Now let's take a moment and carefully understand what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is not saying here. This does not mean Jesus is saying that you should choose your leaders from the lowest and least qualified. This is actually a commonly misinterpreted passage among uh, those people that would seek to take the Bible and twist it to be a communist, socialist, enlightenment sort of a book. Back in the French Revolution, the idea of the French Revolution was that they killed all of their the, the wealthy, they killed all of their leaders, and then they elevated the very lowest of the people to positions of power. Taking that idea of elevating the lowest, this is actually the, the communist idea as well, that you get rid of the bourgeoisie and the proletariats, the people rise up and claim power. This is not what Jesus is talking about. In fact, we see that way of thinking spoken against in the scriptures on multiple occasions. In Isaiah chapter 3, the, uh, Isaiah said that one of the judgments upon Israel for their sin is that children would rule over them, that children would become their oppressors, that the weak and the, 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 the ignorant in society would be elevated to prominence. This is what happened yesterday in Washington, D.C. at the gun march. These children have been elevated to this voice and they're ignorant. And they have no idea what they're talking about. But they are our leaders now. The Bible calls that in Isaiah 3 a judgment of God. It, we also have this idea in Jeroboam. When the kingdom divided in the days of Rehoboam, after Solomon died, Rehoboam takes over in the united Israel. And Rehoboam makes bad decisions, and Jeroboam takes the ten tribes, and they go to the north, and they create Israel, and Rehoboam gets Judah and Benjamin, and they, they maintain Judah. At that time, Jeroboam got very nervous because he noticed that the ten tribes of Israel were still going back to Jerusalem three times a year for the feasts. And so he created a hybrid worship system, reminiscent of the days of, uh, of the Exodus, where he forged a golden calf and he placed one at the very bottom end of his, of, of his um, kingdom in, in Bethel and one at the very top end of his kingdom in Dan. And he said, These be thy gods, O Israel, that brought thee out of the land of Egypt. 
And one of the distinctives of this hybrid pagan worship system is the Bible says Jeroboam took from the very lowest and the least in society and elevated them to the priesthood. He took the very lowest and the, the, the worst of society and elevated them to the priesthood. And this was something that was uh, wrong in the eyes of God. And so this is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying that if you want to be the greatest, then you take the ignorant, you take the, 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 the refuse of society and you elevate it to a position of power. Taking the ignorant and the least qualified and putting them in positions of power and leadership. This is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not espousing that the lowest and the weakest and the most ignorant in our society be elevated to positions of greatness. Rather, he is saying that the humblest, the meekest, and the most servant-hearted in our society will be seen as great. It means that the strongest and most qualified men among us should be the best servants of all. That those who are good leaders, that the man who is a good leader will not be a good leader just because he makes good decisions. The man that is a good leader will be a good leader because he has humbled himself before those he leads. Because he is a servant of all. The greatest among you will show that he is great by the degree to which he serves his brethren. Jesus was not an ignorant man. Jesus was not a pushover. Jesus was not the least that society had to offer. But Jesus was great as he proclaimed the authority of God, as he spoke as one having authority, authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus was great because he became the servant of all. And we know this not only by Jesus' words, but also by his example. Jesus states this obvious truth. He says, economically, socially, such, if you see a man eating meat and you see a man serving meat, you know that the man eating meat is greater than the man that is serving the meat. Now, these lines of distinction break down in our society today because of uh, the service industry today being so accessible, right? I can't say that because a person is at a restaurant that the person that's serving is, is um, for, the, for all we know, the person that's serving is the manager of the restaurant and he has, uh, you know, he, he's got, or maybe he's the owner even, and he's, he's a great man. He's, he's a man that can be far more accomplished than the guy that is using his last five bucks not to pay his rent, but to, uh, to buy a burger or something, right? So uh, it, it, it's not this way in society today. However, in that society, the lines were quite clear. If you are the one sitting at meat being served, you're greater than the one that is serving you. But then Jesus takes a special note that he, the God of all flesh, the Son of God and the coming King, did not come as the man that sat at meat. He came as the man that served. This did not lower his greatness. This did not lower his ability or his capacity. And this is the thing with greatness. Oftentimes we think that because I want to be great, that means I have to act great. And to act great in a human fashion is to walk over people, to dominate, especially among men, to dominate our surroundings, to dominate others. This is how men are built. That's why we do that king of the hill thing, throw others off. We've got to dominate. Jesus said, that is not how you will identify the great man. The great man among you 
will be identified not by class, not by structure, not by wealth, not by those things, not by strength. The great men among you will be identified by those that serve. Because whether you're poor or rich, whether you're weak or strong, whether you're intellectual or not, the propensity is not to say, I'm going to be great by serving. And if a man gets a hold of that, if a woman gets a hold of that, that's where greatness is found. Among us, among us, the kings of the Gentiles, it's always going to be that way. It's always going to be that way. That greatness is winning. That greatness is power. That is greatness to the world, and it always will be. But it should not be so among we who sit in these seats this evening. That should not be greatness. Greatness should be as Jesus, the one who serves. We don't need the title of leader or benefactor or strong or beautiful in this life. What matters is that we have the title that Jesus took, which is servant of all. And that is where a leader also becomes a benefactor. This is what Jesus reminds his disciples as they continue. Verses 28 to 30. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus tells them this, and this is to give them perspective. How is it that, that the church sees greatness in this light? It's not just because serving is greatness. It's because the servant of all in this life will be exalted in the life to come. So as we look at greatness, we look at greatness on a spiritual plane, which says the one who is serving today is the one who will be great in God's kingdom tomorrow. The one who is doing, investing his talents now and multiplying them by tenfold is the one that's going to have ten cities in the kingdom. And so because of that, I look at them today and I say that is a person to aspire unto. Why? Because he has spiritual greatness. He has got a hold of how to lay up treasure in heaven. So Jesus says, you are the ones that have been with me in my temptations. In these hard times, you are the ones who have been faithful to follow me. And I've appointed unto you a kingdom as, a, as my father has appointed unto me a kingdom. Jesus' statement here is very reminiscent of the parable of the certain nobleman that went into a far land to receive for himself a kingdom and left his servants. And then when he comes back a king, he rewards each of his servants with cities over which they will rule. So the king goes to a greater king to get a kingdom, and then that king basically confers little kingdoms upon his servants. Very reminiscent of that parable. And that's the idea here. Jesus tells them that for their faithfulness, on account of their faithfulness, and according to their faithfulness, he will appoint for them kingdoms. That their greatness, that their titles, their honor, their glory, it's coming. It is coming. It is not to say that because we become servants of all and we humble ourselves here, that that's all we get. Because the greatness is coming for the servant one day in the kingdom. It's coming. He reminds them that the very thing which they observed just moments ago in their time and in our studies last week, the, the Lord's table, that they will eat and drink with the Lord in his kingdom 
that memorial which we perform regularly through communion, he reminds them that that is their future, that they will be with him, that he will appoint for them a kingdom. He also tells them that they will sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There is some different, there's some disagreements regarding the interpretation of this. Um, some believe that this means that the 12 apostles will have a very specific role in the kingdom where they will judge the 12 tribes from 12 thrones. Uh, that's not necessarily out of line with what we see in Scripture. It's not out of line with, with God's promises, and that could very well be. Uh, others believe that it just means that they will join the many in the kingdom who will rule and reign with Christ. We know from Revelation 20, verse 6, that that is our heritage, that is our future. The Bible says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So we will rule and reign with Christ as well. Um, and, and so there could be one or the other. We will share with Christ in his reign, whether the apostles, those 11, and then Matthias as he would be appointed after um, after the events of, of the resurrection and Jesus' ascension. Uh, whether they have a unique place or not is, is speculative, but it's passages like, like this one in Luke 22 that lend us to the, the idea that they, may, they may, may have a unique place, and indeed we would expect that, if nothing else, for the way God used them and the degree to which they served Him, they will have great reward in heaven. And then Jesus now, in, in the passage, turns His focus upon Simon Peter. Verses 31 and 32, the Bible says this, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Peter is the name which Jesus gave to Simon. Simon was his Hebrew name. Simon, son of Jonah, or Simon Bar-Jonah. In their time together, Peter is, as I mentioned, the name that Jesus gave him, meaning rock. And then as we get into the epistles, he goes by the name Cephas. So Cephas is the Hebrew word for rock. Basically what happened is Jesus gave him a new name, and that new name was Peter. And he assumed that name Peter. But when the Jews were among the Jews, they, took, they, they went by their Hebrew name. And when they were among the Gentiles, they went by their Greek name. And so among the Gentiles, Peter would go by Peter. But among the Hebrews, Peter would not go by Peter. He'd go by his Hebrew name. However, he didn't want to go by Simon anymore because he, the, the name Peter is very significant because he's the rock upon which Christ would build his church according to, to, to Christ. And so instead of going by Simon, he goes by Cephas, which is rock in Hebrew, in order to correspond to Peter, which is rock in Greek. So they all speak of the same man, is where I'm getting with that. And Jesus warns Peter that Satan desires to destroy him, to have him and to sift him like wheat. It's clear here that Satan had chosen Peter specifically to attack it's often the case that those among us who have the most potential, those among us who are the most committed will likewise be the heaviest targeted by the spiritual forces of darkness. And Satan is the great accuser of the brethren, the scriptures tell us. And if Satan uh, has done, 
here, much like he did with Job, if he wants to do with Peter, much like he did with Job, then we might expect that Satan has accused Peter before God that when given the opportunity in a true time of distress, Peter would forsake Christ and deny him. And he uses this example of being sifted like wheat. The idea of sifting wheat is to separate the kernel of the wheat from the chaff. Now, uh, the kernel is the part that actually has use. And the chaff is the part that you want gone. There's many different ways to sift. Some will use uh, something like a strainer and they'll sift it that way. And as they, they th throw the, the wheat in the air and they've got a little grate, as it were, they'll sift that and stuff will fall through and the, 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 uh, the, the chaff will fall through, the chaff will blow away, and what will be left would be the grain, the kernel. Uh, there's also, as you see on the screen here, a way that people will do it. Well, they'll take a pitchfork and just throw it up in the air on a, on a breezy day. And this would be called what, what we see in Ruth, the threshing floor. Uh, the idea of, of threshing the wheat, this would be one of the ways that they would thresh the wheat. Uh, they'd smack it on the ground to separate it, and then they'd toss it up in the air, and the wind would blow the chaff away, the light part, and the kernel, which is heavier, would not be blown by the wind and would, would fall back to the ground. And the idea here is that Satan desiring to sift him like wheat is Satan wants to prove that Peter is, is, is chaff, not, not kernel. He wants to prove that Peter will be blown away. He won't stand in the day of temptation. That he is useless for God. And Jesus' warning here is that Satan is going to attempt this thing. But Jesus says, and I love this, but Jesus says, I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. Christ himself was advocating on behalf of Peter, praying to the Father to reduce Satan's power to the extent that Peter would not fail. He was going to fall but he was not going to fail altogether. And we see this admission in Jesus' next statement. He says, when thou art converted. And this is interesting. I prayed for you that your faith, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, that word converted literally means to return or to bring back. He is telling Peter here, you are going to fall, but I've prayed that your faith will not fail. And when you come back, when you return, when you are brought back to me, then strengthen thy brethren. When you are renewed in strength, then strengthen thy brethren. And there will be a point, we know, where all will forsake the Lord. It's interesting to note that only in this gospel, the gospel of Luke, is Jesus' warning to Peter recorded in this way. In the other gospels, the warning is more broad, with Jesus telling all of them that the disciples would offend and scatter. However, in all of the accounts, whether it's Jesus telling all of them you will be offended or just Peter that he would fail, Peter is the one that responds. And in all the gospel accounts, he responds the same way. We find this response in verses 33 and 34. And he said unto them, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Peter replies, Lord, I would follow you to prison. I would follow you even to death. Now, those of you who have been listening to me for some time know that I am not predisposed to be very hard on Peter. That said, there are times where Peter says some really silly things. I don't think this is one of those times where Peter says something silly. And I guess the question I would ask is, what else would Peter say here? 
What would you say if you were Peter and Jesus just told you that you would be attacked by Satan? Would you say, well, okay, Lord, I guess that's it for me. Or would you say something to the effect of, no, Lord, I'm going to stick with you. Would you say, yep, I guess I'm going to fail you. Or would you say something to the effect of, Lord, I'm going to fight. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do right. I'd like to think that each of us would have the zeal and determination, even if it had been somewhat in ignorance, to think that maybe, just maybe, we would maintain faithfulness to our Lord. Now, that being said, Peter probably could have used a little more fear and humility here to hear the words of Christ and to take them as, as, as a stern warning and, and for him to say something to the effect of, forbid it, Lord, God forbid, I would desire to follow you. But thank God for a heart such as his, and I'm convinced that this is one of the reasons why God chose to use Peter so powerfully in the future, because of Peter's great zeal for the Lord, though sometimes coupled with ignorance. So Jesus does put Peter in his place here. He tells Peter that the cock would not crow that day, something that the rooster does as the morning approaches before Peter had denied knowing the Lord three times. Now, there is a difference, there's a discrepancy between Jesus' words here in Matthew, uh, here, and then that in Matthew 26, uh, and that found, excuse me, let me clarify that. There's a difference between what is found in this passage and in Matthew 26 with the passage found in Mark 14, with the parallel passage there. In Mark 14, verse 30, it says this, And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. This is a discrepancy, but this is not a contradiction. In Matthew and Luke, they simply record that Peter would deny Christ three times before the cock crows. Mark specifies that Peter would deny Christ three times before the cock crows twice. This does not invalidate the statements of Matthew and Luke, it only adds more. However, you might get someone that struggles with this a little bit because as we read the, the, the Mark passage, we find that, that Peter's, all three of Peter's denials do not come before the first cock crows. All three, uh, th there's at least one after the first crow and then it's, after the, it's, it's at the second crow and his third denial. To that end, there's some people that struggle with this a little bit. I don't, think it's a problem. Matthew and Mark were given, a, they, they were speaking in a context, giving relation, the cock will crow, you will deny him. They give that, that perspective, that is what happened. Just so happens Mark becomes more detailed. It's not a contradiction, uh, just a, a discrepancy, just a difference. So Jesus then turns his eye toward the whole group. And we know that, that Jesus is switching from talking to Peter to talking to the whole group because it says, then he said unto them, and then we're switching pronouns. We're going from thee and thou to you and your. In our King James Bibles, thee and thou is speaking to one person, you and your is speaking to multiples. So Jesus says unto them in verses 35 and 36, when I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said nothing. Then he said unto them, but now he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. So Jesus thinks back to that time that we studied again back in Luke 9. We're referencing Luke 9 a lot tonight 
back in Luke 9 we studied, and at that time Jesus was commissioning them to preach the gospel in Galilee. And he told them as they went to preach the gospel in Galilee that they should take nothing with them. They should take no sustenance. They should take no protection. They should take no provision. That Jesus would would take care of them, that God would take care of them, uh, that they should not take things for their, their journey, for their ministry. And as Jesus recalls this commission to their minds, he asks them, when I sent you out without any of those things, without provision, without protection, did you lack anything? And they answered naturally, nothing, Lord. We lacked in no way. They didn't go out prepared, but they never lacked. They were entirely dependent upon God. Jesus then responds that now things are going to be a little bit different. Circumstances are about to dramatically change. Again, what is Jesus doing here? He is trying to prepare them. He is trying to prepare them for something different, for something new. At the time when he sent them out into Galilee, there was a temporary commission. It was a short sprint. They were there for a time to preach the gospel of the kingdom in in presenting the king to the people. And now they're about to transition from a spiritual sprint to a spiritual marathon. Whereas they went before focused with great urgency, preach the kingdom because the king has come. The time is short. The kingdom is, is at hand. Jesus is now about to die, about to raise from the dead, and the church will be established. Their mission will no longer be a sprint of just a few weeks or months or a couple of years. They're about to go into long-term ministry. There's a difference between packing for a week and packing for a month, isn't there? There's a difference between packing for a month and packing for a year. There's a difference between spending a few weeks somewhere and spending a few years somewhere. If I'm going somewhere for a couple of weeks, I pack several changes of clothes, I bring a couple of books, I bring my laptop, I expect to do laundry while I'm away, and then I'll just cycle through the clothing, and I'll do laundry, and I'll cycle through the same stuff for a couple of weeks. That's not what I would do if I'm going to be gone for a couple of years. If I'm going to be gone for a couple of years, I pack quite a bit more. Life needs to take on some level of normalcy, right? I'm going to be living a normal life in a different place. I pack differently. And this is the idea here. Jesus says it's time to start thinking differently about ministry because I'm no longer just sending you out for a short commission. We're going into long-term mode. So he says, this time take your money and buy provision. Take your traveling papers that grant you access. Take your sword to defend yourself along the way. Carrying swords was a very common thing because there were many bandits along the road as they would travel. For those that that walked along the way, there would be bandits. And so you have a sword to protect yourself from the danger of robbers and the like. And Jesus was telling them, take your swords as well to protect yourself along the way. In other words, the mission to tell others the gospel is about to become woven into the fabric of their daily lives and it will begin to do so at a pace that is far more reminiscent of normal life rather than forsaking all and following this man around the country for several years preaching they're going to go back to their families and their lives and they're going to establish churches and they're going to need to live they're going to need to function in society And what is the great change that is about to take place? Verse 37, For I say unto you, that this that is written must be yet accomplished in me. And then this is a quote, And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. 
Jesus is quoting here specifically from Isaiah 53, 12, which says this, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus says, this is about to happen to me. And because this is about to happen to me, your thinking on ministry is going to have to transition. And the disciples' response here is interesting, and this is where we'll finish our exposition this evening. Verse 38, And they say unto him, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he says unto them, It is enough. So the disciples really zeroed in on this sword thing. They really zeroed in on this sword thing. And you might say, yeah, they're boys. Of course they're zeroing in on the sword thing. That's what my, that's what my boy would do. But they kind of missed the whole part about Jesus being numbered among the transgressors. And that, that kind of got lost in the idea of, okay, now we get to fight for you. Now we get to usher in your kingdom with bloodshed. And so they, they, they start looking around, where are the swords? Uh, well, Jesus, we've got two swords here. Can we fight the Romans with two swords? Jesus says it's enough. You missed the point, but that's okay. It's enough. It will become apparent by Peter's response to the religious leaders in Gethsemane, which we'll study in, in a little bit, that, that they did miss the point, right? Jesus is praying. They come to get him. Peter immediately chops, chops off Malchus's ear. He's ready to fight. One of the two swords is now ready to go, um, as if that'll be enough to defend their king against Rome. That's not what Jesus is saying here. And we know that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not calling them to take up swords in insurrection and rebellion. Jesus is calling them to to start living normal life. Take your swords, defend yourself on the road, live life, defend your family, do the things that you do. This is life now. Life and ministry are about to interweave. Jesus is not telling them that they are to usher in the kingdom through fighting. As a matter of fact, this would be the opposite of what Jesus told them a while ago. Uh, we won't cover that tonight. We'll cover that another, uh, in, in a couple of weeks. So Jesus looks at their two swords. He says, yep, that's enough. You're fine. Time has not yet come, and they'll figure it out eventually. And, and this is where we're going to stop our exposition this evening. A, a couple of applications I want to draw from the text as we close. We've talked about them in part already. Number one, as we apply, we need to remember that God is just to judge evil even when evil accomplishes his will. This is not just a a simple point that we can brush by. This is something that even Paul, and we'll get there in just a moment, has to contend with in the Roman church. We've spoken a little bit that Judas Iscariot, being the son of perdition, slated by God to be the one who would betray Christ in the hands of sinners, and thus to be the one who the Lord effectively curses, can we say that God is just? Again, we did discuss this. Can we say on a broader perspective that God is just in using evil to accomplish his will. And what I'd like to do in order to flesh this out a little bit more is introduce you to a couple of passages of scripture that can really help you here. If you get into a conversation with someone and he starts saying something to the effect of, how can, we, how can God judge evil when God uses evil for his glory? If God uses the evil things that people do for his glory, then how is it right for God to say, I wanted you to do that because that's to my glory. Now I'm going to punish you for glorifying me. And the first passage I want to introduce you to in regard to this is actually the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk deals with this almost exclusively, in a manner of speaking. There's other elements of God's character woven throughout, but this is the theme of Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, the Bible says this, 
Habakkuk writing, he says, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land, to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. So Habakkuk sees a burden in his day and he cries out to the Lord. He says, Lord, I see violence among Israel. When will you judge Israel? When will you judge God's people for their wickedness? And this is God's answer. I will send the Chaldeans to judge Israel for their wickedness, to judge Judah specifically. And Habakkuk does not like this answer. He really does not like this answer. He is deeply troubled by the idea that the Chaldeans are going to destroy Judea. He says this in verse 13 of chapter 1, Thou art of purer eyes to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue, when the wicked devoureth a man that is more righteous than he? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, God. I want judgment upon Judah, but you're using a, a nation that's significantly more wick, wicked than Judah to judge Judah? You're of purer eyes than to, to use wickedness to accomplish your will? I don't know what Habakkuk was expecting, but he did not like the idea that, that the wicked were going to devour more, those that were more righteous than they. And God responds with many words. This is where Habakkuk says, I will sit upon my watch. He literally says, I'm going to wait for an answer, God. I'm going to stay up and sit upon my watch till I get an answer from you. And God says this in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire. Or is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire? And the people shall weary themselves for very vanity. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God hasn't brought these things upon these men. God didn't start this problem, but God is sure going to finish it. God says, don't you worry, Habakkuk. Don't you worry about the Chaldeans. The whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Don't you worry if I use evil men to judge other evil men that are less evil than the evil men that are judging don't worry about that because those evil men are going to get it too. They're going to get what's coming to them as well. But I reserve the right to use evil to judge. I reserve the right to use heathens to judge my elect. And the book ends with a response from Habakkuk. Again, we're, we're, we're paraphrasing greatly. But the book ends with a tremendous response of humility where Habakkuk says this in chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. When I heard, my belly trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail. The fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like hinds feet. He will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on stringed instruments. He says this, God is just. I see that. God is good. 
I see that. Right now, I see everything is crumbling around me. My nation, my people, my temple, it is, they, they have forsaken God. And now I learn that God is going to use a nation more wicked than they to judge my people. But though the fig tree is, is not blossoming, though the fruit is not in the vines, though the olive is failing, though the fields are yielding no meat, I will rejoice in the Lord. God, let it be as unto your will. You are, you are just. You are right. You are good. And I'm going to trust you. I'm just going to get on your side because I know that you'll take care of it. And this is, as it were, the moral of Habakkuk. And I mentioned already, Paul speaks of this also. We'll mention it just briefly. Romans chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Peter says this, uh, Paul says this. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? Is God unrighteous in taking vengeance upon me if my unrighteousness commends his righteousness? In other words, Paul says, the, we, we see the elevation of God's righteousness as it's contrasted with how very unrighteous we are. So if the very fact that I am doing unrighteous deeds is elevating the righteousness of God, well, then my unrighteousness is a good thing, right? Because it's elevating God's righteousness. It's a backwards way of thinking. But by the way, it's not foreign to the church. It's not foreign to the church. That's why Paul has to write about it. He says, I speak as a man. I speak as not, he, sa- he says, I'm not, I'm not saying what, I'm not teaching you Christ's doctrine here. That's what he says when he says, I speak as a man. He says, I'm telling you what a man is thinking, what what a carnal mind is thinking. He says, God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? How can God judge the world if unrighteousness is not judged worthy because unrighteousness elevates God's righteousness? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported in some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Within this way of thinking, they say, well, if, if my doing evil extols the righteousness of God, then the end justifies the means. I'm going to do evil in order to glorify God. Uh-huh. That's not how it works. And that's what Paul is saying here. We're slanderously reported that we believe this. We don't believe this. This is not right. The damnation of those that do evil is just. What then? Are we better than they? Are we better than the unrighteous? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Even if an unrighteous man redounds to the glory of God, God is just in judging him as a sinner. His damnation is just. This is, to this end then, ends do not justify the means. I cannot just do evil and say that that evil was done to bring about God's will so God will not punish me for that evil. It doesn't work that way because all are sinners. All are sinners. And yes, it will all eventually abound to God's glory, but only because sin will one day be dealt with. Just because we haven't done some sin that we think is really bad on our moral scale doesn't make us better than anyone else. So we say, well, I'm not going to let that wicked, unjust government judge my good and bad. How dare that government that does those sorts of things try to tell me what's good and bad? Look, whether it's a good government or a bad government telling you what's good or bad, if you're doing bad, they have the right to tell you it's bad. 
I'm not going to let my immoral boss tell me I did something wrong. That's, that's just not how it works. That man's choices has nothing to do with whether or not you're doing right and wrong. So do right. God is just to use evil to whatever ends he sees fit. And God is still just to punish those men for their evil, even if they become tools in his hand for good, because God is using them in spite of their evil, not because of their evil. So God is just to judge evil. Point number two as we move on. Serving others is greatness. We're reminded this week of one of the core principles of the Christian faith. If you want to be great in the eyes of God, it has nothing to do with your earthly status. It has nothing to do with your money. It has nothing to do with your earthly honor and power. The greatest among you will be your servant. This is, this is counterintuitive. This is the exact opposite of everything that the world tells you every day. Young people, this is the exact opposite of what the world will preach to you. Every day of your life, the world will preach that greatness comes through power. Greatness comes through money. Greatness comes through beauty. Greatness comes through accomplishment. And it's a lie. It's a lie. Don't believe it. Greatness comes through service. That's what Jesus tells us. That's what Jesus exemplified. That's what Philippians 2 tells us. That Jesus served even unto death. And that is why God highly exalted him. And that is why God gave him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. Because Jesus served others. Let this mind be in you. It should dominate your thoughts. It should dominate your intent. It should dominate your existence. How can I lower myself today and elevate others? How can I place myself below someone else today? How can I serve someone today? How can I serve more? Where can I serve more? There is no higher Christian calling than service. There is no greater Christian aspiration than service. I'm not going to belabor this point. I don't think it needs to be belabored. It is what it is. It's all throughout Scripture. If you want to be great in God's eyes, humble yourself. Serve. Submit. Love. Final point. We have an intercessor. I hope you never get over those words from Jesus' mouth that he said to, to Peter, but I have prayed for thee. Jesus had prayed for Peter. Do you know that he's prayed for you as well? John chapter 17, Jesus' prayer for his disciples. He said this in verses 8 and 9, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest to me, as he prays to the Father, and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. He goes on to say, I pray not for these only, but for those that will be, will be saved through them. He has prayed for you. Satan is the great accuser of the brethren. Satan is the great deceiver and the father of lies. But we are not alone in this battle. We have a Savior who has prayed for us. We have a high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. We have one that we can go to so that we can rejoice 
that there hath no temptation taken us, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer us to be tempted above that which we are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that we may be able to bear it. That Jesus Christ was tempted in all points like as we, and yet without sin. And he becomes our great mediator. He becomes our great intercessor. He has prayed for us. We have a God who is active, interested, and personally invested in your victorious life. And he has asked us to serve him and promise that if we will have this mindset in this life, then we will have rewards in the life that is to come. Do you believe it? As we come to the final hours of Jesus' life, we see that his heart and his mind rest not upon his own suffering, but as is exemplified in his servant's heart, his heart and his mind are resting upon his disciples. They're going to face dark hours and troublous times ahead. Christ, in those final hours, sought above all to provide for their spiritual success and their future ministry. And this is just like our Lord. And now, as one who is victorious and risen from the dead, he ever lives to intercede still providing for our spiritual success in ministry. Are you struggling? You're struggling in some area of your life. You're struggling spiritually. Jesus prayed for you. He wants your success. He's invested in your success. He desires your success. He divinely enables your success. How are you doing this evening? Are you living in light of his sacrifice, walking in service to others? living in the power which he has secured in his resurrection, or are you stuck in the mud, living out the defeat that is found in the world? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.